welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Although there are hundreds of ways for us to catalog and publicly share our lives, saving these digital artifacts is complicated. Even the most successful attempt to preserve the web, the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine, only saves isolated web pages. In the December issue, Nora Kaplan-Bricker considers the work of archivists who are trying to conserve the context in which tweets and other social media artifacts exist, carefully considering which moments are kept for future generations and how they can exist in a format that conveys how we see them. Here's our conversation. I thought your article was so fascinating, particularly as someone who has spent more of my life with the internet than without it. And it brings up these really fascinating ontological questions. There's the world of Twitter, like most of our existence now is sitting in front of a screen, if it's a computer or a phone, what have you. And there's a part where you note that, you know, that's sort of unique to this time. One of the many things that is unique about this time, but in some ways we don't have that for the past either. Like we have books, we have the Gutenberg Bible, we have all these different remnants, written texts from the past, but we don't necessarily have like that phenomenological, ontological experience of what it was like to be alive in the 16th century. We have only what people wrote down. We don't necessarily have like their weird thoughts or, you know, necessarily, right? No, yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, And that makes me think about the reason I started looking into this subject in the first place was that I was talking with a former professor and writing mentor of mine who is a biographer and was talking about um, the sort of challenges or potential challenges or anticipated challenges for biographers in the future who are trying to write about people who are alive now and the fear that the kinds of sources they've relied on won't exist anymore or are, or are not being created in our present era. Um, but I think when I started digging into that question and that question of sort of how are we creating the, the future of history right now, um, it quickly became clear that it's not really, it's not that there is less information being saved necessarily, or even that as some people have claimed that it's necessarily lower quality information. You know, I think lots of the information that and sort of content that's be creating, being created online is really interesting and of a high quality and captures a lot about the way that people think and the way that letters, you know, did before email, for example. But it is obviously different to try to save this information. It, requires different um, different ways of thinking about archiving and different practices and moving at a different pace. Um, and, and so there are definitely challenges that are unique and new, but they seem sort of more complicated than saying, oh, well, the, the good information doesn't exist anymore, or it won't be possible to write history books using this information. And I think what you're saying brings out a way that in some ways, what we're creating now might be more useful or more expansive in allowing people to understand our times, but um, we'd have to figure out how to preserve it for that to be the case. Can you discuss how people are 
going about that preservation because you know in your article you're talking about this project by rhizome where you can record yourself you know navigating the web and it is stored so you could theoretically show what it's like to be screwing around but then there's also these more sort of like you know twitter archivism which is the you know like with what happened in ferguson and capturing the tweets that the you know activists there people on the ground there were writing yeah absolutely so i think you can't talk about efforts to preserve or archive um the internet without talking about the internet archive um which is this sort of by far the largest effort that exists in this space. Um, and it has it runs and has created the Wayback Machine, which is, I think, how a lot of people interact with or are familiar with the Internet Archive. So the Wayback Machine is this enormous repository of, I think at this point, over 340 billion pages that have been saved, some by um, kind of an automated aspect of the Wayback Machine that crawls the web and saves things that seem important according to people at the Internet Archive. But we as users of the Internet can also save pages into that. So it's this enormous project that has saved far, far more than um, anybody else has saved from the Internet going back um, at this point a couple of decades, I think. So that's a really important effort that exists. Um, but it's very dissimilar to traditional archiving work in that there's a kind of um, maximalist philosophy at work. They're really trying to save um, as much as they can. And traditional archivists are more focused generally on sort of quality than quantity or on what would be referred to as appraisal, you know, the effort to figure out what do we really need and why do we need it and how can we contextualize it and how can we make sure that it's ethical for us to have it? Um, and that's not, it's its really just, that sort of philosophy is really just beginning to be applied to the work of web preservation and social media preservation in particular. And that's really what is at the heart of this piece that I wrote and the efforts that I wrote about um, is that there are various archivists and, um, and people in the kind of internet ethics space trying to uh, apply those traditional appraisal practices that go back, you know, hundreds of years, if not more, depending on how you look at it, to the work of saving the web. So um, one of the projects that uh, that you just referenced that's doing that is the web recorder tool that was created by an um, internet kind of art um, organization called Rhizome. And this tool allows you to basically turn on a kind of recorder and then surf the web and it records everything that you do. Um, and one of the things that the folks at Rhizome emphasized when I talked to them that I thought was really interesting was the way that as if you use the web recorder tool, you are kind of creating the object that you're saving. So traditionally, archivists would think about um, themselves as being totally divorced from the process of of creating the object and only involved in the pro in the process of preserving the object. And one of the things that I think people who are trying to view web preservation from a really rigorous kind of archival lens is thinking about are thinking about is the fact that they kind of have to get involved earlier in the process. There's so much out there. The web is kind of infinite 
and little discrete things like a single tweet or a single web page even don't really feel like objects in and of themselves a lot of the time. So it's really up to the archivist to figure out, you know, what do we need and what are the kind of boundaries of the thing that we need and how can we create that? So the web recorder tool um, kind of forces you to do that in that you are adding to it every time you click a new link or open a new page, you're adding to the recording that you're creating and that will be preserved. Um, so that's one way that this sort of conscious work of the appraisal or the conscious um, involvement of the archivist is being mapped onto web preservation instead of treating web preservation as just an effort to kind of save as much as you can. I mean, I can make a generalization and I, it's not great, but I think it's pretty safe to assume that because most archivists are affiliated with, you know, institutions like colleges or um, just sort of doing this out of the goodness of their own heart. <laughs> um, let's say uh, they're more liberal to left leaning in their you know, politics. And so has there ever been an attempt or are there attempts to archive things that are maybe a little nastier, let's say, like incel culture? transpires on internet forums where men are sort of actively, collectively hating on themselves and each other and sort of reinforcing this very nihilistic worldview. And these people, even though they live online, they also live in the real world. And sometimes, you know, the frustration and hate that they have fostered online translates into real life violence if it's Elliot Roger or the guy who shot up a yoga studio. So is that consideration of, you know, maybe this person who wrote this and what they're saying is terrible, but it is of sociological import because of other actions they may take or other sort of, or I guess, I don't know, I mean, Donald Trump, like other political sort of influences they may have. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the answer to that is yes, um, that, you know, a bunch of the folks I talked to who are really trying to figure out, you know, in the enormous, almost infinite feeling space that is Twitter or that is Reddit or that is social media, you know, what is most important to save, the answers to that question seem to be kind of you know, we need to save the discourse on the left and we need to save the discourse on the far right. You know, we need to kind of save both of those that sort of, um, you know, um, really polarized looking um, discourse or kind of pockets of discourse that are opposites. Um, so, for example, the Documenting the Now project that's kind of at the center of my piece, you know, they've saved a lot of um, social media and tweets in particular from activists in Ferguson and people involved with the Black Lives Matter movement, but they've also saved some of the kind of unite the right hashtags and, um, you know, the sort of Twitter activity among the so-called alt-right around the Charlottesville um, incident. So they definitely are saving both ends of that spectrum um, and trying to preserve voices on both ends of that spectrum. Um, whether there's anybody within those kind of far right communities, 
doing their own documentation to the extent that, as you pointed out, there are people within these kind of like leftier communities doing their own documentation. Um, I don't know the answer to that. And in some ways, uh, I think, well, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but definitely people who are kind of watching watching this stuff unfurl online from an academic perspective are trying to save um, a lot of the uglier stuff too. I think that's sort of, that's what I am aware of happening on in that area, but I'm kind of curious whether there might be, you know, is there anybody um, within those alt-right communities who's thinking about this or I'm sure if their story ends up being told by somebody on the left, they'll, they'll have something to say about that. But um, <laughs> I don't oh, know yeah. of anybody who's sort of thinking about these questions in that community. Right. With these questions of different online subcultures, you were citing Clifford Lynch, who described them as these unique, non-repeatable performances. How, aside from something like the, the web recorder, are there other sort of more advanced um, projects in the works that are going to try and sort of replicate that experience um or are there new technologies that could possibly replicate that experience because as you note in your article um digital has sort of this reputation as being like well it's digitized it's good forever and it's not (laughs) it is absolutely not because companies are always updating their software file types go out of uh, style let's say and uh you can have entire novels, paintings, what have you, that you stored on a floppy disk. And now it's just not, you have to go to a special location to get even access those items because nobody has floppy disks anymore. Yeah, I think the web recorder project at Rhizome is really one of the kind of groundbreaking examples of someone trying to take what's happening on the theory side in this field right now or you know what people are starting to realize needs to be done and then create something that can actually do that or can at least do that to an extent. I mean, I think the ground is shifting so so quickly in this field right now in a way that you can see for example with the Library of Congress Twitter archiving project which is really the biggest social media archiving project that has happened thus far and you know it really by far the highest profile project where the Library of Congress um, entered into an agreement with Twitter um, where they both said, okay, you know, this material has historical value. So Twitter is going to be a good global citizen about that and give all the stuff to the Library of Congress and the Library of Congress is going to keep it and then we'll have it forever and that'll be great. Okay, done. And the attitude was sort of, well, as long as we kind of get all of the stuff, then that will be fine. And that's all we really need to do is make sure that some cultural memory organization has this material. And that was um, announced, I think, in 2010. Um, And, um, you know, almost a decade later, the attitude at the Library of Congress and in the field in general is totally different, that the library is trying to be very thoughtful now, is my understanding about the sort of ethics of making the Twitter archive available and the necessity to really index and contextualize that archive and make sure they can kind of protect people's privacy in certain ways before they make all of that available. So what seemed to be a sort of, you know, cut and dry issue of 
well, we get the stuff, we put it in the vault, uh, and that's enough. Um, there's now, you know, not many years later, an understanding that that's not at all sufficient, that there's a great deal of sort of careful thinking that has to go into, um, you know, the, the rights of Twitter users as creators of their own data and um, the ability, again, to do some kind of appraisal and do some indexing to um, make this information available in a way that isn't just a kind of file dump of, of text. That's just, just a huge amount of change in a pretty compressed period of time in terms of where the field is at um, in its own understanding of what needs to be done before you can say, yes, I have actually preserved this material and I've done so in a responsible way and I've done so in a way that's going to create a usable record and an ethical record for the future to have. I think the Clifford Lynch paper, when that came out, a lot of people in the field mentioned that to me um, as a really groundbreaking and exciting point that, um, that again, we can't really think about tweets as objects. We have to think about the sort of experience on Twitter of being on Twitter itself as the thing we're trying to capture here. And so how do we do that? Um, that might involve, again, archivists getting involved in the sort of creation of the thing they save not just getting involved at the end of the process and taking a finished object and saving it. So that's a total um, reversal from what the field has traditionally looked like. Um, so when that paper came out, that Clifford Lynch paper, there was a piece in the Atlantic where a bunch of archivists told the reporter, we love that paper. It's so inspiring. Also, this is not happening and we cannot imagine this happening. His idea of you know, people kind of recording non-repeatable performances or recording their Twitter streams, sort of being citizen archivists. So the, the Rhizome Web Recorder Project is at least a technological innovation that would allow citizen archivists or allow all of us as citizens to be archivists of our own Twitter feeds and do some of that work of curating what we would want to save and saving it for ourselves, which would make it possible for you know an archivist in the future to kind of very very hypothetically take the things that we've created ourselves and save them instead of having to ask an organization like the Library of Congress to step in and do all of that work using all this raw data and figuring out what is actually shareable or what's usable from this. I want to go back to this question of consent because I think a lot of times people don't realize that you know Twitter or Facebook are not they're not like water where everybody you know it's like it's a municipal thing these are large corporations their goal is to make money and they also have obligations to the government and sometimes they don't because they don't feel like it because it would be bad for them um, and I'm thinking of the big New York Times expose of Facebook recently. Um, so I guess the, this issue of consent, how have archivists been navigating that? Like, are they reaching out to individual users? I mean, I was really touched by your description of the archivist who's actually meeting with the Ferguson activists and being like, look, government is really interested in what you're posting. Um, and then their own sort of response of being like, well, I'm trying to be I am projecting my best self on Twitter, and I am, as a person, 
sometimes I, I make mistakes because I am a person. So what does that navigation of consent look like when it is more of like a large dump situation? Yeah, I think that's really the key question. And on the one hand, I think it's fair to say that all of us as users of social media and definitely including um, activists who use social media, we've all in our you know, lifetimes as users of these platforms undergone an enormous and really terrifying education um, in what it means to use Twitter or to, you know, to live some of your life in public in the way that we do on the internet and nobody ever has before. Um, so I think that's one element to this that's interesting to me that we're all kind of learning these lessons sort of together as a society and that um, sometimes, you know, and of course we're learning them, you know, in the pages of the New York Times this year as we realize what Facebook really is behind the scenes and what it may have done to us. Um, and all of this is scary. So I think some of what has probably happened here is that, you know, people who used a platform like Twitter, you know, for example, in the Ferguson protests and made amazing use of that platform and found it really essential to their organizing efforts also learned in the aftermath of that, how that made them targets for surveillance or how, you know, government entities were able to use their, um, their Twitter data against them. And there was kind of no way you could know that beforehand as an activist um, because nobody had ever used Twitter in those ways. And, and now I think, you know, those groups of people are learning those things um, with or without the help of archivists. But definitely the archivists themselves also have an ethical responsibility to think about what it means to save somebody's data, especially to save data that, you know, might have a kind of surveillance potential. Um, and that's where the archivist that you refer to come in, you know, um, the archivist in particular, Bridges Jules and his um, co-lead on the Documenting the Now Project, Ed Summers, who have been um, preserving the Ferguson data and also making relationships with the Ferguson activists and talking to them about what it means to preserve that data. Um, so to get to your original question of consent, um, I think the the essential challenge here is that when we talk about social media, we're talking about something that is vast and um, there's just so much of it in a way that hasn't been true before. So 50 years ago, if you were interested in a social movement, you know, say you were interested in you know, 70s feminist organizing and you wanted to save a bunch of correspondence and you just you would just talk to the people who had written those letters and probably still had the originals and you would get their permission and you would save that stuff. And the people who had written it would be participants in the preservation process because they'd be the ones, you know, handing the stuff over and telling you that you could have it. Um, and on Twitter, that's not the case, partly because this stuff is kind of already out there. So there's a feeling that it's public, um, even if the people who put it out there didn't intend for it to be public or didn't think about the ramifications of making it public. So that's complicated. And then there's just so much of it that you physically cannot ask every individual person. You physically cannot track down every person who tweeted something you might be interested in saving. 
and say, can I have this? You know, can I save this? Um, literally, if you tried to do that and reach out to that many people, Twitter would shut down your account um, and say you are a bot. So I think that creates a challenge for anyone who's trying to save that data um, that we haven't really navigated yet. Um, the documenting the now project, I think they are actually hoping to winnow down their their holdings about Ferguson at some point so much so that maybe they could even make individual contact with people and ask them, can we save this in this sort of old school archivist way? Um, another, there are other ways to approach this. Um, you know, there's one project being worked on called InformBot that would maybe sort of tweet using hashtags to get into the stream of something that the archivist is collecting so that even if they can't reach out to every individual Twitter, Twitter user, anyone who's following that stream would see this inform bot tweeting, like, you know, someone is collecting this. So don't, don't tweet about this if you are not open to that. Or, you know, here's where you could look for in more information about why this is being collected and what would be done with that collection. Um, so you can't totally consent people at a giant scale, but maybe you can at least inform people at a giant scale that their data is being collected so that they know that. Um, there, so there are kind of various ways to try to take the ethics into account. Um, and the ethical questions here, the sort of responsibility of the archivist to ask for consent definitely depends heavily on what the content is. So if you're talking about you know, the George Washington University Library, um, there's a team there that collects a lot of Twitter data around political issues and campaigns and their position, and I think they're 100% right about this, is that they don't have to ask permission to collect, you know, Senator so-and-so's tweets or President Trump's tweets because those are a matter of public record. Um, so things like that, absolutely, that, you know, there's a different standard for collecting those and, and they're more obviously something that kind of belongs to all of us as a part of our history. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you might have something like the Me Too tweets, um, which are so important to understanding a giant um, social change of the last year and change, um, but which are so incredibly sensitive and personal in a lot of cases that the idea of saving them without asking people individually, are you okay with this kind of becoming part of history such that you no longer have control over the things that you said in this tweet. I don't know, that's a sort of horrible thought. So I think there are collections of Me Too tweets that exist, and I don't think anyone has really answered that ethical question of what would it mean to get consent for this in a way that would be A, possible, and B, sufficient. Um, so that's a sort of circle that we don't really know how to square as a society yet, but that um, certainly smart people are thinking about and losing sleep over. Yeah. When you're talking about the enormity of this, just the sheer like impossibility that, you know, one person or a group of people cannot possibly reach out to all these people. I mean, I'm reminded of the Shoah archives that Steven Spielberg created, where I believe it's something like if you, it would take several decades to watch all of the materials that are contained in that archive. So obviously these movements are very important and the issues around them are extremely delicate and there's so many different considerations, but who is going to be able to, 
who I mean, basically, who is this being created for? I mean, obviously, it's people f who are in the future, historians in the future, let's say, who are curious about what's happening now. But how will they be able to access this? And will it just be such an enormous amount of stuff that they will not, you know, if you do a keyword search for something, let's say, or a hashtag, are they even going to be able to take in and comprehend this information just by virtue of like how much there is? Yeah, it's a really great question. And I think, I mean, I think one of the things that drew me to this topic in the first place was the way that when you're, when you are alive in 2018, a crazy time, um, or when you're on Twitter, it's really, it feels really impossible for me, at least as a person to wrap my head around what any of this means um, to live in the times we live in. And uh, so it was maybe kind of a, I've been you know working on this piece on and off since November of 2017. And it was maybe sort of cathartic to sometimes escape into this topic and imagine a time when um, Twitter no longer existed and Trump was no longer president and um, you know, some, the spectacled uh, urbane person was just looking at all of this data and figuring out what it meant um, to to be a person on Twitter in 2018 and kind of answering that question for all of us maybe long after we're dead. Um, but the truth is, as you're saying, uh, just as we cannot, I think, as people take this enormity of information that we have right now and figure out what it means, if you just gave a person in the year I don't know, uh, 2118 or something, all of this Twitter data, you know, every tweet ever and said, okay, figure out what this means. They would not be able to do that. Um, and nobody would. So I, I think one of the things that archivists have always done for us as a society is sort of, um, begun to winnow down the record and tried to figure out this is important. This is not important. They need this. They don't need that and use the context they have or the you know context of having lived something or having lived more proximate to something important to make some of those choices. And um, a lot of that winnowing happens through happenstance or through, um, you know, the kind of socially oppressive realities of some things being considered important because they pertain to, you know, more affluent or powerful um, people and something's being left out of the record. So it's not that that winnowing process is always good, um, but it happens. And then somewhere along the way, you get a record that is, you know, more usable for um, people trying to understand the past. And so I think part of what the archivists who are trying to bring some of this appraisal, um, this sort of philosophy of appraisal of, you know, trying to, instead of maximizing the amount that you save to think critically about what you're saving and why part of the reason to do that as you're saying is to try to start working towards a record that is more usable for the future that's kind of more sound and less noise um, and that isn't just random because otherwise you run the risk that the people who inherit what you've made um, or inherit the record you've preserved will have no idea what to do with it and will make actually really inaccurate or poor choices because they didn't have the context to make better ones. So part of the work of appraisal is providing context. You know, I was able to save this, but it's missing this element. 
um, not because that element wasn't important, but because I just couldn't save it for whatever reason, or, you know, um, these tweets were by a Russian bot. So don't misinterpret them as actually coming from an American activist or, you know, whatever pieces of context are necessary so that the future doesn't kind of misinterpret our present more so than, than is absolutely unavoidable. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think the kind of appraisal question is partly a consent question as we've talked about, and then is also partly, you know, a question of what is the archivist's role. And of course, largely it's a role of preservation, but partly it's also a role of kind of preservation through a critical lens, because otherwise, you know, can you really say, I have preserved these things when they're so, you've passed along so much and so much of it is basically junk that good stuff is buried and no one is likely to ever see it again. You know, in that case, have you really managed to save it? So, so yeah, I think um, for the archivists I talk to who are really um, advocates of the idea that we need appraisal to be part of the way we preserve the web, what that means to them is partly a kind of ethical consideration and partly a practical consideration of, um, you know, the things that really matter, like the key tweets from the Ferguson protests, how do we make sure that those aren't lost in the shuffle, that, you know, the future actually has those and has those to understand the important events of our times? Right. And I think the question of the Russian bot tweets also leads into the question of veracity, because is it, I, I feel like this was like a far side cartoon, maybe, but, you know, you're actually a dog in real life, but no one would know. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe something not as sophisticated as uh, some Russian guy trying to foment uh, racial the race war in America. Um, you know, it could be something as simple as just somebody who has some sort of... Um, emotional problem, let's say, and is or mental illness and is pretending to be in a place that they are not or misrepresenting things about what has happened out of resentment. Like there are so many just human factors that can give false information. And clearly that's what is so dangerous about the Internet is that there's just so much information. And if it is bad, it's really hard to tell if it is indeed bad, or if you don't want to believe that it's bad, it isn't bad to you, right? So I guess um, aside from sort of winnowing out these um, these things that are definitely false, are there other ways that archivists have been able to sort of like verify stuff or is it just like kind of the wild west? I think it's, it's totally the wild west and it, you know, anything involving a kind of academic consideration of, of the internet is the Wild West because it's all really new. Um, but I, I think more so than verification, what they are thinking about is contextualization. And so some of that is this sort of granular level, like, oh, we preserved a bunch of tweets thinking they were by an American activist, but they turned out to be by a Russian trying to foment the race war. So, you know, we're not going to delete that from the archive because that happened and that's part of history, but we are going to add 
a note or write a paper and append it so that anybody who's looking at this knows, you know, oh, those tweets turn out to be by a Russian trying to foment the race war. Um, that's important to keep in mind. So part of it is that kind of granular context. And then there is also the question of just um, just the sort of larger context of what the platforms themselves look like. And I think this gets back to the question of um, what is an object when you're trying to preserve the web or trying to preserve social media, you know, is a tweet an object? Is it a useful object decontextualized by itself? Maybe certain tweets are, but most of them are not. Um, so is the important thing to save really the feeling of being on Twitter or just an awareness of what it was like to be on Twitter? And that would include an awareness that most people who are interacting with social media increasingly know, you know, a lot of this stuff is not true or a lot of this stuff is coming from sources I won't be able to verify as you're saying so I think part of the effort to preserve social media is now you know turning from a kind of again in the early days I think people were it's fair to say people were more concerned with how how can we get as many tweets as possible um, and now there's this more kind of meta analysis going on where archivists and preservationists are starting to think about how can we preserve um, an understanding of the platform itself that will be necessary to underscore any actual tweets that we've managed to save because without an understanding of the context in which they were created and in which they were perceived, you know, the tweets themselves are kind of maybe not a very useful artifact or even a super misleading artifact. Um, and that that is a challenge because ultimately the platforms themselves, the algorithms that, that the platforms are made of are proprietary. They're owned by these giant companies that are, you know, not thinking about preservation or if they are, it's very low down on their priority list. So how do we as the public or how do archivists um, try to save an understanding of something that, you know, it's sort of in the interest of the companies for us not to understand it because they keep changing it and they, they don't really want us to know what's in the secret sauce. Just even thinking about the world of like the weird, weird ecosystem of YouTube comments and what that, yeah. you know, that that these are like thoughts in the most literal way. Like it sounds facile, but these are just what thoughts are. They're not they're not complete a lot of the time. They are incoherent. They cause fights because they're incoherent or unclear, like only clear to the person who bothered to type them out. It is so, um, I don't know, This it, it's been really wonderful talking to you about this issue, um, which is somehow both silly, but also insanely important and at like the core of, <laughs> of the human experience. Um, which is, again, it's weird to say that, but we spend, like, that's our lives now, right? Yeah, terrifyingly. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> this is a terrifying, but also weirdly reassuring that somebody is trying to, you know, not Mark Zuckerberg, not Sheryl Sandberg, <laughs> not some, like, weird libertarian Silicon Valley bro. It's, like, actually thinking about these issues and, like, what it means for humanity. I think the thing that I increasingly found myself dwelling on as I was writing this is the idea that 
this is somehow a a kind of flip side to the obviously you know more pressing and important debate we're having about you know Facebook for example and all the revelations about how Facebook has um, has shaped our present and you know maybe shaped our elections and um, violence all over the world and um, well even just social norms exactly and that just the enormous role that we haven't really understood until now that these platforms have in our lives and so it feels to me like um, you know the the flip side of that role in the present is that or the the kind of the other kind of aspect of that role in the present is the reality that these platforms to some extent um, also own our digital histories and control our history in the making. So, you know, if the personal is political, then the personal is also historical and our, our personal interactions on Facebook and all other platforms have certainly proved enormously politically influential in the present. And I think um, it's really scary to think about the fact that our memories, our personal memories and the way that they shape our understanding of history are also kind of um, now somehow proprietarily um, controlled by these entities that have proven themselves not particularly socially minded to say the least. And so for me, part of the appraisal question or the question of, well, isn't it important to get permission to keep this stuff even though technically it's already out there on the internet, you know, part of that desire to get consent and part of that desire to give people control over the fate of their own tweets and posts is, um, it feels to me, is a commitment to the idea that the author is the owner and the platform isn't the owner, that it's not Twitter that gets to say, okay, Library of Congress, here's everything, do what you want with it, that it's us as individuals on Twitter who should at least know that that's happening or should get some sort of say um, in what's going to become of our words, even if we should have been more careful when we kind of spewed them out into the internet. Um, so it feels to me like part of what these archivists are doing is trying to commit to that norm or protect us as, um, as authors and protect our agency as authors even if we ourselves, you know, most of us, and certainly me until I started working on this piece, aren't even aware of the lack of control that we have over the things that we write online. Well, thank you so much. This was really wonderful. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me about it. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.